Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. This week, Joe Biden launched his 2024 presidential campaign to discuss his chances and the fallout from Tucker Carlson leaving Fox News. I'm joined by the American historian Victor Davis Hanson. Is Joe Biden the favorite to become president again in 2024? I don't think so. If he were to be the nominee, I don't think he would be a traditional candidate. Uh, He would be an artifact, a prop a construct, they're going to have a problem because they had the veneer of COVID last time that would allow him to stay in the basement and be a 19th century front porch candidate. But this time, they will have to have some attempt at it. But I think they're going to outsource. He's just to assemble um, a veneer, as I said, a scab, and underneath is this wound of le- hard leftist, and they have an agenda, and they use him to moderate or give the veneer of moderation. But they will outsource the campaign, as they did in 2020, to the Silicon Valley titans. They raised hundreds of millions of dollars more than tr- Trump, maybe twice as much with counting the packs. Should Trump be the nominee, they'll tie him up with a series of Mr. Bragg in New York, Miss Latita James in New York, uh, the Fannie Willis in Georgia, Jack Smith, and the special prosecutor in Florida. So their their plan is to gain him empathy to get the nomination and then to hemorrhage him for 18 months. And then finally, they just outsource it to the media. So the media, you can already see what the media is doing here in this country. They're running ads, uh, excuse me, Biden's not running very many ads, but their narratives on the on the. Uh, local news and national and state news is that Trump really wasn't that bad of a guy, that he's now running to the left of DeSantis because DeSantis is a hard right counter-revolutionary. It's dangerous. But Trump, he's reasonable on abortion. He's reasonable on Disney Corporation. He's reasonable on uh, Social Security. And so what they want to do is what they did in 2016. They build him up, and then once he gets a nomination, they flip 
and they use lawfare money, the media to destroy it. Let's stick with Joe Biden for now and then we'll move on to Trump and DeSantis a little bit later. Does Joe Biden compare to any US president in, in history? Who is he most similar to? It was pretty clear that the last 18 months of Woodrow Wilson's uh, presidency, he had a stroke and that was hidden by Edith Wilson, his wife and his physician. And so what they did was they got together with his advisors and sent out daily communiques of what Wilson wanted. But we know for that period he was unable to communicate or think rationally. Later he had a semi-recovery where he could walk. I think he died four or five years later, but we had for about a year and a half no president at all. And uh, I think we're getting to that point where Jill, Jill, Dr. Jill Biden, serves as a conduit. And a conduit to whom? To Bernie Sanders' wing. Uh, I shouldn't say wing. That is the orthodoxy of the Democratic Party. Bernie Sanders' people, Elizabeth Warren, the squad, the Obamas, and they tell them, these are going to be the appointments, federal judges. These are going to be the bureaucratic appointments. These are going to be the initiatives. And it's basically, we want this on transgendered, open border, uh, Green New Deal, New Green Deal, all that stuff. And then they hand Joe, and then he he goes into his his one or two minute fits where he says, you know, ultra mega semi-fascists are stopping us. We've got a great agenda. We've got a great record. We need more time. And that's how it, that's working. But he's not... I think everybody, even on their side, there's a lot of left-wing writers who are basically now admitting that he's not in full control of his faculties. Now, Biden released a campaign launch video. Do you think he's going to have another campaign where he's basically in the basement again, he's not really going to go on the campaign trail, do speeches, do rallies, and he'll just be a very sort of low-key campaign from the president himself? Yeah, I do. We've got to remember one thing about him. He was always narcissistic. When he was old, Joe Biden from Scranton, and he was healthy, and he was one of the youngest senators in history, he loved the limelight. He loved to get out in front of people. And he didn't do that by choice. He was not physically able to do it in 2016. When he left the vice presidency, he was not in, in good health. And remember, Biden famously was told by Obama, Joe, you don't have to do this, meaning imagining a, a run for the presidency. And then in 2020, I guess as early as 2019, people on the Democratic stage were telling him, Cory Booker, what are you doing? Who is this guy? I mean, he was that evident uh, failing. And then 2020, he used COVID. But he didn't want to do that. He had no choice. Or he'd stumble or he'd fall or he'd say create the corn pop stories. The biggest fear was that he without those uh without the, the cognitive control over his emotions he was saying things like the corn pop saga or you eat black or you're a junkie that were really offensive to people or he was glaring young girls or he breathed on their hair or he'd say she's a good-looking young teen so they didn't want him out there i don't think it was and i think he understood that now they don't have covid they're going to keep him. They have no choice. They have to keep him. So he had a video. He didn't announce it. Because if he had announced it, he wouldn't have been able to read the teleprompter without serious grammatical or syntactical or mispronunciation uh, errors. So I, I think that's what he's going to do. It'll just be interesting how they package the, his non-presence. 
whether he's too busy being president or he's got an agenda or he's got to worry about foreign crises. It has to be something. But we've never, getting back to your prior question, we've never seen anything like this in our lifetimes where, you know, Wilson was 19, we're talking 1917 and 1918, excuse me, 1918, 1919. Even from a broader international perspective, what, what is going on with your president is utterly bizarre and unique. And I think there are, there are wider implications than just this presidential campaign, where you have this president who's not really in control, it seems, of, of his agenda. And there are people behind him, as you say, who are sort of making the decisions for him. What do you think those broader implications are? I've just outlined some of them. Well, we've seen them already, and I think the impression is two things that the commander-in-chief of the U.S. military, for example, Joe Biden, will not react or cannot react or cannot grasp, and that he's delegated authority to people of whom our foreign enemies, neutrals, and allies don't know really who's in charge. And then second, they do know that this is the most left-wing revolutionary group of people that has had power probably since 1933. They came in with FDR. And how that transmits is that Iran now is going full blast uh, with nuclear enrichment. It probably already has a bomb. It has a factory in Russia making drones. Apparently, it's going to start that. China and Russia are together. China now has usurped our place as a honest broker. It, it is in with Ukraine, even though it's giving no mo- money to Ukraine, no weapons to Ukraine. It's helping Russia, and yet Ukraine is looking at it as a broker with Russia. North Korea is back to its annex about sending missiles everywhere. We've got a new problem with Turkey the other day. It said it would send missiles into Athens one morning, that the Dodecanese Islands are back up for negotiation, even though they're on Greek sovereignty. Um, So I guess what I'm saying is neutrals look at this, and whether it's South Korea, Japan, the Philippines, Australia, Taiwan, and they say, We've got to make some strategic decisions because we don't believe the United States is there. And then allies like Saudi Arabia, for example, uh, and Turkey, they look at this and say, I think the United States is in decline and China's ascendant, and we don't want to be left out in the cold defending Western interests when there's not going to be any support for us. Are we under the nuclear umbrella? Would we be helped like we were in the 91 Gulf War? And they've made the necessary adjustments and have distanced themselves from us. It's very quickly, though, because, I mean, we we went from the Abrams Accord where the entire moderate Arab world was on the verge of flipping and uniting with Israel against a common enemy, and we were energy independent and didn't need, couldn't be leveraged by them until being to this sad midterm spectacle of Joe Biden begging the Saudis to pump more oil while he had denigrated them and said that earlier he wouldn't meet with him. So it's chaos. So despite all of this, it seems, from my perspective, that there isn't going to be a challenge to Joe Biden in terms of the Democratic ticket in 2024. Now, there is obviously Robert Kennedy Jr. who is attempting. Do you think there's going to be any serious challenges to Joe Biden's candidacy for that 2024 nomination? Not unless he has a serious health like a, a mini stroke or something, or collapses, probably not. And I don't think uh, there's going to be any internal, I mean, primary debates, internal party debates. So if Robert Kennedy announces his 
candidacy, which he did, and he already polls 14 or 15 percent without doing anything, then the logical question is, wouldn't he have, like, Ted Kennedy and, and Jimmy Carter, wouldn't he be a serious candidate? Wouldn't he have debates? If he had a debate with Joe Biden, it would be embarrassing for Biden. And so I think Biden is raising money and he's sending out the message, I'm not going to debate anybody. I am going to be the nominee. It's futile to run against me. And I have given the hard left everything they want. I've given the left corporate wing of the party everything they want. There'd be no reason to re- to replace me other than, you know, superficial appearances. I think they prefer this almost. I think they like the idea of a virtual presidency because he's so predictable and he can't do anything unless he's spoon-fed the narrative. And that that's much better than having a volatile Bill Clinton or Obama. In 2020, Joe Biden beat Donald Trump, despite all of the gaffes, despite his clearly sort of aging um, physical health and everything else. Do you think that that Donald Trump can beat Joe Biden in 2024? I think he can. The polls suggest they're about even. The odd irony is that Ron DeSantis polls better, uh, but not nearly as good as Trump in the primary. So Republican voters are kind of looking at a It's very early, so it's probably premature even to speculate, but they are with this dilemma that the person who could clearly beat Biden clearly is not going to get the nomination, they think, and the guy who will get the nomination can't beat Biden. So I think we, we can see that, with all, as I mentioned earlier, with all these prosecutions, prosecutions. The point is they want uh, Donald Trump to get that. And that may be a mistake. It surely was a mistake in 2016 when they gave him a billion dollars of free media coverage. But they want him to get the nomination. and They want him to be an empathetic victim so people rally to the cause. And then once they do that, we'll see a succession. So Alvin Bragg will draw this out uh, about campaign financing or whatever that would be. And then we'll have Latita James on the real estate portfolio. Then we'll have the sexual harassment 30, 40 years ago, an allegation without support of sexual assault. And then we will have uh, the Georgia phone call. And then we'll have Jack Smith, the special prosecutor. And I think they will coordinate and, and space this out so that once he's the nominee, we're going to hear a gag order issued on Trump. Uh, bombshell revelation, our sources tell us walls are closing in and they're going to try to hemorrhage him that way. Has there been a a period in U.S. history or or an example of a U.S. president where he lost the election and then he went on and won another election later on? Just one with Grover Cleveland in the late 19th century. And Cleveland may or may not, it was very similar. His first four years were very successful, and then when he ran for re-election, there were serious questions about the integrity of the balloting, and then he came back and won again. He left office the second time not very popular, but now when historians look back, he was the Democrat that broke up the post-Civil War Republican monopoly, and, and he, gets, he gets kudos for doing that and some reforms. And so that's what Donald Trump, if you actually look at some of the campaign ads, the, the, a couple of them mention the fact that he's at Cleveland or he's, he can come back and do this again. But uh, that's the only time that we can, we, we've seen that. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Now, you've said that the Democrats would prefer to go up against Donald Trump than Ron DeSantis. 
because he's easier to beat in a general election. But maybe there's another reason, because Donald Trump was so chaotic as president, and he was perhaps uh, he was slightly incompetent, to say the least, in trying to reform the deep, deep state and things like this. Perhaps they would prefer Donald Trump, who's, who's more focused on these crazy kind of um, personal problems and the indictments and all of this stuff, than Ron DeSantis, who might be more effective at actually passing his agenda. Well, that's certainly true of a large minority of the Democratic Party. They feel that Trump gets mad, but DeSantis gets even, that he, he focuses and he fixates on the problem. So when you look at the Florida success he has, he, goes, he knows how to go right after in concrete fashion. He neutered Disney. He got rid of critical race theory. And he, he knows how to operate the levers of government. He's very effective. And because of his uh, brilliant wife and the people around him, he doesn't make sloppy appointments. He doesn't... uh, I think Donald Trump has been done a great disservice, but I don't think they could be as effective trying to do to Trump what what they're doing to Trump to DeSantis. I don't think he would give them that exposure in his personal life and his business life. So, yes, there's a lot of people who believe that uh, the Democrats, for all their irrational hatred of Donald Trump, uh, would feel that it would be chaotic and they could do what they did in the past. They could have a special investigator. I mean, they've, they've learned nothing and forgotten nothing. When they did Russian collusion, everybody thought they would be so humiliated and ashamed. They never brought any shred of evidence. Their TV, radio social media all claim they had evidence that he had colluded. There was none, and then what did they do? They just took a deep breath, they went into impeachment. And after impeachment, what did they do? They went, During the campaign, they went into Russian disinformation, complete fabrication that Hunter Biden's laptop was a product of Russian disinformation, but they ran with it. It was very successful because they squashed that story and they suppressed that, that, that true story. So, yeah, I think that's, that's what's going to happen. And they think that they can do that a lot of people think they can operate much more effectively against Trump because he's not a seasoned politician, even though he's been president for four years. The other 60% maybe of the Democrats, just they don't even think about that. They just hate, they hate the way he looks. They hate the way he talks. They hate who he is. They want to destroy him. They hate his family. They hate everything about him. And they will come out of the woodwork with all the money and resources they have. And if you, tell, if you were to tell them, as some of the people that are running the Democratic Party are telling them, be careful, because Ron DeSantis is, will be much more effective, and he knows how you, you think and what you do, and he's going to overturn everything that Biden did. Not going to talk about building a wall. He'll quietly say he doesn't know whether he can build the wall, and then he will build it. And so they don't care. They think, I don't care. I just hate that. That's their attitude. Do you think it's wise for Donald Trump to criticise Ron DeSantis in the way he is. Because Donald Trump has basically said that, that Ron DeSantis has caused many problems for his home state in Florida. And this, again, is attacking DeSantis from the left. And it's the same thing that Nikki Haley is doing recently. She's attacking DeSantis over his fight with Disney and saying that Disney can come to her state um, because she wouldn't be so confrontational. Do you think it's wise for Trump and, and Nikki Haley to attack DeSantis from this left-wing perspective? It's a big mistake. And 
because it's incoherent. I mean, Donald Trump moved to Florida for a particular reason. He, if he doesn't, if he thinks it's so ill, he has the resources. He could move back to New York, but he doesn't. And he knows that Florida is well run. That he knows that DeSantis won by over a million votes. He knows that he got constituencies to vote for him that usually don't vote for Republicans. He knows that his record is sterling. And so when he attacks DeSantis, A, and it is a mistake, but B, when he does it from the left and he attacks him on Social Security, on Disney, on abortion, then he lose, he, 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 it, it works on the premise that, well, the base will never leave me, so I can strangle DeSantis in the cradle. That's what we want. Before he even announces, I'm going to strangle him. But I, I think it's going to get... He, the operative idea is that Trump has the base, but he always missed a 3 to 5% suburban swing Romney voter or independent voter. And by attacking DeSantis, he will win that. But I don't think he understands. There was also a large number of never-Trump doctrinaire, maybe 3 to 5%, that did not vote for him uh, and could vote for him but not if he starts to act like this. If you tell a never-Trumper that maybe sat out and you said, well, look what you did. You gave us Biden. This is a disaster. He would probably say, you're right now. And as bad as I don't like Trump, I will vote for him. But when Trump attacks DeSantis, who is their their favorite candidate, a lot of never-Trumpers want DeSantis to be nominated, and they say they'll come back in the party. Not all of them, but a lot, because of their personal animus against Trump. Then they get turned off. They said, if he does this, especially when Trump says things like he will never win the MAGA vote or these veiled threats that if DeSantis were to get the nomination, Trump would walk. That's absolutely suicidal given the Republicans and conservatives have no margin of error. That, That really turns people off. And then out of the blue, I think Trump gets the message once in a while. So the last two days he's issued, just for one example, a campaign ad about foreign policy, and it's one of the most effective, devastating ads I've ever seen. It's, it's got a, a potpourri of what's happening around the world, nuclear threats by Putin with a bomb going off, and then Joe Biden stumbling on Air Force One, and then lunatic things from the Iranians and all of these things, and then Joe Biden in a press conference bewildered. And, but it's on issue-oriented, and it doesn't mention dissent. Much more effective. But he's listening to... He's a combative guy, but he's listening to the wrong people. And so far, DeSantis, uh, I think the strategy, and I'm not, you know, I'm not in the inner councils of either one of these candidates, but I think the DeSantis strategy is something like the following, that after all these indictments were announced by Bragg and their others were going to follow, that natural outpouring of empathy for Trump shot him up in the polls combined with the fact that DeSantis had not announced, which was okay, but under this circumstance, he got pressures from his donors and said, you're playing Rudy Giuliani of 2012. You think you're so good that you you can come in Johnny-come-lately, and you're going to be strangled and extinguished before you're viable. So those two narratives dominated the media, and he started to sink. But I think the DeSantis idea was just hold steady, don't panic, don't just get elected governor of Florida, then go all over the country and be criticized for abandoning your, your constitutional responsibilities, but announce in late May or June, and by that time, 
Trump, people will start to see that the empathy is going to, A, wear off from Trump and, and become more generic. The people on the Republican conservative side said, look what they're doing to Trump. They hate us. They do this to all of us. And it won't be uniquely beneficial to Trump. And then a lot of people will say, I think this is what their census is thinking. They're going to say, well, I like Trump. He did a great thing, but my God, I'm not up to psychodramas, melodramas for the next. I just don't want to hear that there's a gag order today or Trump is in court tomorrow or Lakita James is talking about all these things or he's this rape trial where she's bringing up all of this gross stuff or the the legacy of Stormy or Jack Smith down there in Morlago or the Georgia phone call. Just stop it. I can't take it anymore. That's kind of what DeSantis thinks is going to happen. And there's, I think there's some reason to believe he may be right. Do you think that Trump is inherently non-ideological? And it's rather, there's, there's this phrase that there's something called Trump Inc., which is all about making money. I mean, for example, Trump has been pushing these NFTs and things like this, which don't actually go to his campaign, but go to his own kind of pocket. Do you think that that is a problem where he's not really a sort of ideological Republican? It's more about kind of his own personality. Well, that was the narrative uh, about the Trump family that Ivanka or Jared... They all came from, you have, you have to do what you do to do business in Manhattan. You deal with environmental groups, you deal with unions, you deal with marginalized community groups, you do, and you just say and do what you have to do, and he did it better than anybody. So he survived in the real estate jungle of New York. So therefore, and you look at his political history of endorsing Democratic candidates, of being good friends with the Clintons at their wedding or Chuck Schumer, I think all of that is true. But I do think that he had a natural empathy in 2015 and 16 for working people because he was a builder and he had a record of talking to workers of hard hats, of showing real empathy with the middle class, and he was a nationalist. So he was very angry about China. That's all he talked about before he announced his candidate, what China's doing to America, not just to his businesses, but to America. And so, and then when you add as a candidate, after the honeymoon where they wanted him to get the nomination and they were giving him free coverage at CNN and MSNBC, then when they started this abuse of him, I think it just radicalized him. So I think now you could say that he is a hardcore anti-leftist. I don't know whether you can say he's a doctrinaire conservative because on issues like, as I said, gun control or abortion, he's not as conservative as most Republicans. And, th- and that's, but, he, but on other things like the border and, and China, he's pretty conservative. I, I think he's a realist, a pragmatist. His idea is that a conservative approach to everything with end limits works. So if you're a traditionalist of conservatives and you don't have statues falling down, you don't have names, you come to work, then the, the street corner is not renamed. You come to work, there's not a bunch of people defecating on the sidewalk. You come to work and there's not a lot of people uh, injecting or fornicating. And for him, that's stability. And they represent instability. And now you can put instability versus stability into political terms, conservative democratic but he's not a person who says to himself i am a small government uh low taxes deregulating person ideologically he he's a pragmatist 
And right now it's very pragmatic to stop the woke revolution. I suppose the reason I ask is because if Trump doesn't endorse DeSantis, if DeSantis wins the nomination, then that seems to me to not be very smart from a conservative political perspective. You know, you, you would want to get rid of Joe Biden. It's not about yourself. It's about, you know, putting a Republican in power. But just moving, maybe you can comment on that very briefly, but just one quick question about DeSantis. Does DeSantis remind you of anyone else throughout American history? Is he Barry Goldwater? Is he Ronald Reagan? You know, are there any other sort of conservative presidential candidates at this point in the cycle that he reminds you of? Well, he doesn't have Reagan's char- charisma, but who does? And he, he's, he, he's billing himself as a traditionalist, can-do, competent person. He's sort of going back in the tradition of Dwight Eisenhower. I was a general. I know how things work. People forget. They say, well, Ike was very liberal. He was pretty conservative. I mean, when the, the Korean War heated up, Ike gave a message to Stalin. He was willing to use nuclear weapons if it was necessary to stop more Chinese coming across the Yalu. And he did a lot of stuff that everybody forgets about. And he had it was a very conservative position, actually, to take on the military-industrial complex and this idea that we were going to be interventionists all over the world in, um, and take over the, world, the responsibilities and the duties of the British Empire. That was a very controversial idea, and he was pretty conservative. He was a Kansas guy. So in it, I think that DeSantis is kind of like that. He's very suspicious. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So nation building, he's very suspicious of corporations. And so, and yet, like Ike, he's not a flamboyant or charismatic candidate. He, he, he's running on his resume and his, um, his experience. And so I think, I think he's more in that mold. Uh, but you're not going to have a, an exciting electric populist candidate come out. Trump was more like that, and uh, he was. But uh, no, I don't. I think I don't think we're going to see dissent. He's more like an Eisenhower character, and that's good for him. I think people, after all of the psychodramas and traumas, they want a return to normality. Kind of a oh, somebody like uh, Harding or Coolidge. Coolidge is a good example. He said a. After World War One and the whole progressive movement and the whole problems with Wilson, he just, the UN, I mean, the League of Nations and all that, he just said, 
this just returned to back to where it was. And he was a very effective president, but he wasn't a guy who was spellbounding on the pulpit. From a British perspective, I hope Ron DeSantis isn't like uh, Eisenhower because we had some issues there with Suez. We um, had Suez, which we won't yes. get into. But uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, a lot of Americans think that was a critical mistake. I'm not sure that uh, Ike was the point man on that decision that people around him were. But uh, there, I mean, if you have an ally and the ally does things that you might not do, but the ally is in danger after they've started and it doesn't look as good, then what you do is you double down in support of the ally. That's what we should have done. And when you don't do that, you'll collapse a British government that was pro-American. So it was a big mistake. And it led to potentially communism in Egypt. But anyway, on Ron DeSantis's um, foreign policy, on Ron DeSantis's foreign policy, we know that he's He's been a bit sort of cautious. He's he said that the Ukraine conflict was a regional conflict, but then he sort of rode back on that a little bit with Piers Morgan. What do you? Where do you think Ron DeSantis stands in terms of his foreign policy? He he's not that different than Donald Trump. He's a Jacksonian, if I could use that term. A don't tread on me conservative. No better friend. Quote Suetonius on <laughs> on the dictator cell. No better friend, no worse enemy. And as I did is that you build up a huge military, and you hone it, and you use it at choice locations, both for symbolic effect, but also in defense of your interests and your allies' interests. And Trump did that pretty well. So everybody said, well, he was an isolationist, but he killed uh, Soleimani. He took out uh, Baghdadi. He neutralized. Uh, ISIS. He told North Korea, if you keep doing it, you're going to be in trouble. He did, he was the only president during the Bush administration, during the Obama administration, during the Biden administration. They all have one thing in common. Russia crossed its borders into Ossetia, into Ukraine, into Crimea. They didn't under. So I think DeSantis is more or less the same thing. Give Ukrainians the wherewithal to defend their own territory but do not give them the wherewithal to conduct preemptive or offensive uh, operations on the Black Sea or inside Russia that would be against U.S. interests. And then he's also, I think, a geostrategist. Whatever the particular politics of Ukraine are, you have to be aware that there's cosmic forces that are going on that do not favor the Western alliance, and that is the drawing to into partnership of China and Russia and the rehabilitation of Iran and the defection of Turkey really from the NATO alliance. It's now gravitating toward China and Russia. The idea that allies like India keep buying weapons from Russia, keeps buying Russian oil, it, it's unraveling both our allies and our neutrals and it's creating new alliances over this and we can't, I mean, when you, you've, you've gambled geostrategically on Ukraine and you've given them $140 billion, and then China steps in and says they'd like to negotiate after not spending one penny, and the Ukrainian president welcomes that and says it's a good development. I don't think you want to mortgage your entire foreign policy and the stability of the world on that government or that, that particular country especially given its historical relationships with Russia. I mean, Crimea has been Russia since 1780, 
and one-third of Western Ukraine was Polish until 1939, and it was reified by Stalin as Ukrainian-Soviet in 1945. And that prompted the famous quip by Stalin, how many divisions does the Pope have when people at Potsdam said, well, you can't just give reward Stalin and Hitler by, you know, you got to give this back to Poland. And Stalin says... Well, they may be Roman Catholic, but how many pope divisions of pope were, and they just annex it. So we're in this Orwellian situation where we're saying that the Crimea that had been Russia since 1781, we've got to go to the brink of nuclear war to restore, but we have one-third of Western Ukraine was Polish for a thousand years, Polish speaking for a thousand years, and only since 1946, five, six, has it been Ukrainian. And that's just an example of the myriad of issues that we in America don't understand when we get riled up and say, you know, on to Moscow. It's crazy. And I don't think Mr. Blinken or Mr. Sullivan or Mr. Biden or any of these people have any idea of the complexities of that situation and the degree to which withdrawing from Afghanistan or saying, you know, just a minor incursion or winking at Putin when he was uh, conducting cyber war against us. Uh, destroyed our sense of deterrence, and then we overreacted, I think, by suggesting that we were going to get back every inch of Ukraine one way or the other. And that's not going to happen. There's no way in the world that Ukraine has the wherewithal to take back all of the Crimea or all of the borderland. It's just not going to happen. I mean, obviously, that could be a negotiating tactic and everything else. But uh, So I know that you're a um, uh, an ancient historian, and this may be a bit of a silly question because this is thousands of years ago. But do you have any ancient wisdom that you can partake and, and give to Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump? What, is there any lessons from the ancient world that they should be uh, thinking about? When you have these great leaders of the ancient world, whether it's Pericles or Epaminondas or Caesar, they all have one thing in common. And they don't have a concept like we do of populism. But they had sort of the same schizophrenia that when people would brag that they went, we say we went to Harvard or we went to Yale, and the people accept that as not being aristocratic or snobbish, but a sign of, of, of self-made success. They had the same idea that my parents were this or my parents were that. I come from this particular branch of, of uh, all, an aristocratic family, but the most important thing was her personal comportment. So Epaminon is the Theban that destroyed Spartan hegemony, dressed very simply, and he ate with his men. And Caesar was known to sleep on the battlefield with his men. And Pericles, even though he was supposedly an Olympian, he had a personal touch. He had empathy for people. And so I think that was the success of Donald Trump to the degree that the other day he went into a pizza parlor and bought people pizza. Whenever a Republican can do that, because they start out with the fossilized or ossified stereotype that they're the golf course arist arist aristocrat. aristocrat, when we know that the Democrats now are the party of the very wealthy, but still that, that stereotype lingers. And Trump understood that, and he was trying constantly to eat McDonald's, eat ice, you know, just gorge food, and his accent was, it was a queen's accent that bothered a lot of Manhattanites. And I think DeSantis is, is the same thing, that they understand that re this new Republican is not going to fall into the fallacy of Mitt Romney 
having to defend himself from having an elevator or five cars or equestrianism, or John McCain can't remember which of 11 houses he supposedly had, or the Bushes, they went after the Bushes the same way. He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth and all that stuff, but uh, silver foot in his mouth, I think Ann Richards said of uh, George H.W. Sr. So I think this new Republican Party has deliberately tried to become both symbolically and politically, in real concrete terms, the party of East Palestine, Ohio. That's that's their constituency. And, and it, the irony is that DeSantis actually grew up in that area of East Palestine, in Ohio, Pennsylvania borderlands, and he is more of a, a, a middle-class person. Trump has a natural affinity for working-class people. I think he understood that he couldn't run a real estate business without having some connection with the people who work for him in the most physical and muscular sense. So that's that's my—and that, that's always what great leaders with. I mean, Alexander the Great was an aristocrat, but he fought white side-by-side side with his men. When he went across the Gadrosian Desert, he blew it, and he let them all out into a wild goose chase. They were They were— dehydrated, and then they gave him water, and he poured it on the ground in front of everybody and said, not one drop. Very different than Napoleon, you know, in the Russian or the Gaza campaign said, as he left his men in the field dying, he said, "There, my men would not want the emperor of, of France to perish in this fashion, and he left them. But, uh, so that was one idea that you're one with your people. To be fair to Napoleon, I think he did try and look after his men. Um, yes. Whereas Wellington perhaps was uh, more sort of derided his men a little bit more. He said they scared them more. <laughs> he was more scared of his own men than the enemy. <laughs> Someone else who understands the um, the American conservative movement, the new Republican Party, is Tucker Carlson, and he obviously has left his position at Fox News earlier this week. What do you think will be the impact of Tucker Carlson leaving that show, that massively popular show that he had every 8 p.m. Uh, on Fox News? Well, I think everybody is mystified because ostensibly the reason was that they had settled for $757 million with the Dominion. And nobody can understand that either because that was greater than the market capitalization. How can you be damaged more than the net value of your entire product? And then more importantly, by settling, they set the precedence, Fox did, that a network that has hundreds of guests every month can't be responsible for what some loony guest or what some wayward speaker is, any more than MSNBC or CNN or ABC could be sued because they had people ranting every single day that Hunter's laptop was authentic. And that did a lot of damage. I mean, it damaged the, the warped the race. So I think they shouldn't have settled. And then after the discovery process of that and two other lawsuits, there were internal messages. And apparently the narrative is that Tucker, I think you or I, if somebody got all of our internal emails and look what we sometimes say in a heat of passion, we wouldn't want them released. So what I'm getting at, I don't think that there's a serious, there was a serious cause to fire him other than an emotional one. Because if you look at all the hosts and all the guests who may have contributed to the settlement to Dominion, he was one of the few who said, 
I'm not putting Sidney Powell on here anymore. I don't want to hear anything unless you can back it up with data. Within 48 hours, he had dropped any notion that the rumors about inaccuracies or misinformation on these voting machines was viable. So it wasn't that, but it was criticism of the corporate elite. And I think at the very top of the Murdoch family, they had just settled. They didn't want to go all the way down to Delaware. Uh, they, They saw this. They felt that it was a betrayal. And then in the heat of passion over the weekend, they fired him. And I think before they fired him, they thought, Fox is bigger than any one anchor. We fired Bill O'Reilly, and guess what? Tucker showed up, and he has the same size audience or bigger. And then we got, we let Megan Kelly go to NBC, and we brought in Laura Ingram, and we restored we stopped that bleeding. And we can do that because people tune into us because the brand. But I don't think they understand that it's it's not quite like that. It's cumulative. It's like a cut, a cut, a cut, and each one magnifies the prior one. So when you get rid of Bill O'Reilly and you get rid of Megyn Kelly and you call Georgia too early, I mean uh, Arizona too early, and you go up and down and Newsmax and competitors creep in and grab your audience. They've lost over $800 million in stock. Newsmax has doubled its audience. That eight to nine key Eastern time slot has lost about a million viewers like that. Ryan Kilmaid has taken his place as a pretty good newscaster. So I'm not sure they can find somebody like that to come in, A, that is funny and affable and knowledgeable, but B, and more importantly, Paul Ryan is on the board, or, on the board of News Corp. And... News Corp owns the Wall Street Journal, so it is the epitome of doctrinaire conservatism. But doctrinaire conservatism is is not what conservatism is now, the Romneyites. And so they needed Tucker Carlson to appeal to the new Republican Party. And so what, what do I mean by that? He was talking about the absurdity of woke. And I don't know where you find somebody like that who has the ability to articulate those positions but is not crazy, especially Tucker is one, came from one of the wealthiest families in California. He was an aristocrat. His grandfather and family were Miller Lux, which is the biggest landowner in California in the 19th century. On his mother's side, he was Swanson Food Company. He went to prep school. So for him, brought up like that as an aristocrat to become a populist and yet know how the aristocratic mind works is very unusual. And Bill O'Reilly had certain gifts because he came out of kind of a tabloid journalism background and he understood the earthiness of the news and the audience that Fox won. So what what I'm getting at is that Tucker was able to stop the hemorrhaging from uh, One American News or Newsmax or all of the other right rivals, he, they said, why go to those guys when you have somebody who's more responsible and learned but still can appeal in the same topics? And so I don't know where they get that person. And I think that in the immediate week, it, it shows. But just to sum up, Fox was trying to tell everybody, and they let Dan, bon, bon, Dan Bongino go. There's rumors that maybe Judge Jean Pierre. Uh, Judge Dean or maybe uh, Maria Bartoloma, all of these people are telling them, you're vulnerable. There's nobody bigger than the Murdochs and, and News Corps. If you go on the news 
and you say things and it puts us in legal jeopardy or you talk about us personally, we're going to fire you. And we fired the, the unfireable Tucker Carlson. If you think you're better than Tucker Carlson, try it. And so that's that's the message, I think. And I don't know what is in store for Tucker, but all of that said, when you look at someone like Joe Rogan or Ben Shapiro or what Megyn Kelly's done with her streaming, all of these people have divorced themselves from, they don't go on Fox, they don't go on television, and yet in terms of reach and profit, they're far more successful. So I think even though Tucker was supposedly getting two more years at $20 million a year, given his appeal and talents, he could probably make more than that with his own venue. Now, that wasn't true 20 years ago. Ten, it wasn't true five years ago. But we've so fragmented the media business. You and I are talking right now. We don't have to go on television to do that. You don't have to be with the BBC. And I think that's the one of the messages. The Murdochs are not quite, they're not, quite understanding that when you take away somebody who had a greater potential elsewhere and was a precious asset that anchored your whole evening lineup and you fired him in a fit of pick or anger without thinking it through, you've got to be very careful because you're not going to be able to replace a guy like that. That's the impact on Fox News. But just very briefly, can you describe the impact on the wider conservative movement? Because as you said, Tucker Carlson was able to push certain boundaries of acceptability. Um, and, he's, and he's no longer able to do that on such a wide mainstream platform. Yeah, he, he might get a podcast or he may set up his own thing. But I, I'm guessing that that will have less impact on the ordinary, non-political, apolitical American voter who might have just switched into Fox News at 8, 8 p.m. On, you know, on a weekday um, than the more active Republicans who are going to go out and search for Tucker on YouTube anyway, if you see what I mean. Well, certainly the left would agree with what you're saying. They're in celebration now. AOC and people are saying things like, we don't believe in cancel culture, but we got him canceled. That's what they're saying. They think they took him down. They criticize him every day. They said he was a racist. They said he was a transphobe, a homophobe. And they think that eventually they got, uh, for that slot, should have been making hundreds of millions of dollars in advertising, but they were able to cut his revenues by 30 or 40% by boycotts, pressuring corporations that they were going to boycott them if they bought time. And they feel that that's a paradigm that now is successful and they're going to use it. But I don't think it's going to restrict... uh, What we're talking about is, on a good night, Tucker got three and a half million viewers. And that's pretty good. That was almost like a free, uh, you can go on network news for free and get about 4 million on one of the nightly news. And some nights he had 4 and 5 million. And so he was basically telling America, you're going to pay a lot of money on a cable subscription, and yet more of you are going to watch me than what's free on NBC or CBS. That was an unusual development. But that said, when you look at that audience, it's not that big. And... Uh, and so there are all of these other venues. Are those venues affected by this? I think that's your question. Does, does a Joe Rogan say, oh, my God, I, I got to be careful? Or does Dinesh D'Souza or Ben Shapiro say we can't do that? Is the Daily Wire, the Daily Caller, do they say that? Does the people on Substack, do they say we better pull it? No, not at all. In fact, I think they're going to be just the opposite. They feel... 
wow, there's a big vacuum now. There's a three and a half person million audience and we're going to go after it. I think that's the point. Newsmax and Glenn Beck, Newsmax, they're all trying to say, ah, we're the place where we don't censor you. But I don't think there's anybody in the conservative movement that's saying, maybe the never Trumpers, but well, I'm glad he got what he, Howard Stern, you know, I'm glad he got what he could want, but nobody else. A lot of people are very angry about it. What can the Republicans learn from the 2022 midterm elections? And are you concerned about the influence of big tech, AI, these new developments in technology influencing 2024? And how can we, pro- how can we make sure the election is free and fair? 2022 told us that there is no margin of error. I think it told us that on the issues, the country is with the Republicans on closing the border. That, and put, you put all the Republicans who ran on 2022 in every race, and all the Democrats, the Republicans had three and a half million more people vote for their candidates. So on the border, on crime, on energy, on foreign policy, on inflation, on interest, they, everybody's with you. But that doesn't matter because they should have wiped them out, and they didn't. And the answer was that first of all, you've got to get, you don't have any margin of error on the candidates. You've got to get, I like Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, but if they had about nominated the other guy, you would have won. And I liked a lot of some of the candidates, but the guy in Pen- the governor in Pennsylvania had no chance at all. So that's very important that you have to be viable. The other thing is the Democrats now have given up trying to persuade 51% of the people that the that the open border is good or that the DAs in New York or Baltimore or Minneapolis are doing what we need by releasing criminals or we really do need to cut back on oil and gas or inflation is not that bad. They, they've given up. They don't even try to defend it. They never mention anything in detail except they'll say the border is secure or something like that. But they use the word secure because they know they can't say, I'm so happy the border is wide open. So what does that mean? That means they're turning to process. They want to make sure that on election day in 2024, 70 to 75% of the people, depending on the particular state, do not vote on election day. They do not vote on election day. They do not want somebody to show up on his own volition with an ID like he's casting a check and vote. They feel that they will lose every time. They want people to mail in the ballots. And number two, They feel that with $9 trillion in market capitalization in Silicon Valley, that a Mark Zuckerberg can write a check for $419 million and absorb the work of the registrars and key precincts and basically take them over. And it works. And so I think the Republicans are, if they go into this presidential election saying the polls show that all the issues are on our side, the polls show that Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump is ahead of Joe Biden by two or three points, they're in deep trouble because they will use lawfare, they will have certain protocols about balloting, and they will bring in so much money. You have 50 intelligence officers that come out on the prompt of Anthony Blinken on the Biden campaign, and they swear that this is Russian. Dis- looks like Russian disinformation to quash a story. We should assume that They're not stupid, so they're going to look back at 2020 and they're going to say, wow, we had a dysfunctional candidate and we had an incumbent with a very successful record. 
and we destroyed him by these institutional processes. And that was, we changed, suddenly America went from 30% voting absentee to 30% voting in person. And they that was by their own volition and de- deliberate policy. They wanted that. So I don't know how you combat that. Republicans, they get all excited and they say, you know what, we've got the grassroots, we're ahead in the polls now, the issues favor us, but that won't work. They're going to have to get some very savvy, very skillful people that understand the ballot process. And 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 they need a whole team of lawyers. They, they, these are things we've never experienced before. We've always said they were third world. We're the third world country. The United States has no moral authority to lecture anybody about ballot integrity. We are we are at third world status. Thank you so much, Victor, for joining us. I always appreciate your time. Okay, well, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The Eucalyptus Fiber Upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot code SUPER24.